0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia. Also on the web at GraceBible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're actually on the fourth installment of part nine of the thirteen part series that we're doing on the life of Christ. And this is the Ministry of Christ in and around Korea. So uh, looking at it from hold on, let's get, there we go looking at it from our chart that we've been using this is uh, this last three months of this six month period the first three was the latter judean ministry of christ now we're finishing up this time period where we call it the uh, in and around perea he really is all over the place at this point christ is and we've been talking about that the last couple of weeks let's look at it again on the map he starts out in perea that is beyond the jordan uh and John even ties it back to the opening ministry of John the Baptist because Christ is getting very close to the end of what all started with John the Baptist. So then from there, remember he hears about his friend uh, Lazarus and he ends up waiting until he passes away and then coming back to Bethany and raising him from the dead. Instead of uh, great rejoicing at least on the part of Israel's leaders There's opposition, there's a recognition. Hey, we've got to do something about this guy. The multitudes are following him. He's going to end up taking away our places of power and our nation. So at that point, they really are convinced and starting to plot on how to get rid of him. (laughs) Jesus ends up moving up to Ephraim to get out of the area of Jerusalem. And he's really close to Jerusalem when he's there in Bethany. And from there, he makes a journey up through Samaria Heals the ten lepers along the way. Goes up to Galilee, it seems at this point, just to hook up with pilgrims that are getting ready to come from Galilee down to the Passover. So he's making that pilgrimage through Decapolis and Perea. He's going to end up back down in Bethany, this time to, to stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus during the Passover period. So in a couple of weeks, we're... After today, we're going to uh, not have a life of Christ for a couple of Sundays. We'll start back in January, and we'll, we'll walk through Passion Week together. But during that week, Jesus will go into the city, certainly for the triumphal entry initially, and then go back in and teach for periods of time, and then come back out to Bethany. It's about two miles from Jerusalem, and stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, at least for the first part of week. So... <clears throat> This is what we covered last week. We saw two parables on prayer that had two very different lessons. One was an emphasis on persisting in prayer, not giving up, in the same way that the widow persisted with the unrighteous judge. The other was the need for humility uh, and the contrast between the Pharisee who was self-righteous, self-justified in his own eyes, uh, not so with the publican, and he's the one that went down justified before God. We saw conflict with the Pharisee teaching on divorce. Uh, Remember, Jesus had addressed that earlier with the Sermon on the Mount, but he addressed it again here and took them back to uh, the marriage account back in Genesis 2, and the the truth that what God has joined together, no man should separate. We saw an example of people bringing little children to Jesus and, and others, including the disciples, saying, don't bother him with those children. And Jesus said, no, let him come to me uh, Unless you receive the kingdom yourself Like a child You won't enter in the kingdom And, and again, we talked about that in the, the way that a child acts His humility, his dependence really On his parents In the same way we're to have that kind of faith In our God Riches in the kingdom Is a recurring theme in this whole section Of the Ministry in and around Perea uh, The danger of riches The the danger or the difficulty of a rich man entering the kingdom uh, It's not Prosperity itself, that's a sin We, We call up a lot of examples of Old Testament saints that God had prospered But it is the love of money, it is the dependence upon wealth That can get you in trouble And then finally last week we looked at the parable of the landowner's sovereignty The fact that he agreed with a group of people initially to pay them a denarius for a day's wage But he also came to people at different times during the day, later throughout the day, and he didn't agree with them up front with what their wage would be, but he said, whatever's good in the end, I'll give to you. And he ended up giving them the same amount as the ones that had been working all day. The point there being is that God's sovereign, he can be gracious with what is his own and everything is his own. So the people that agreed initially for the denarius and the day's wage had no right to grumble. What we didn't get to, and what I initially planned to do last week, but we ran out of time, was a third prediction of the resurrection by Christ to his disciples, and we're going to see they're still really not understanding what he's talking about here. Keep in mind now, as they're making this journey down to Jerusalem to observe Passover, they're still thinking that he's going to take the throne at this point, and that's what is driving the triumphal entry. They think that he's gonna take the throne, restore uh, the nation of Israel and their prominence, and and free them from Roman rule. So let's look at this. We're gonna look at Mark's account, Mark uh, chapter 10, beginning of verse 32, and we'll look at the other accounts as well. But let's start there, Mark 10, verse 32. I'm sorry? Mark 10, 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. Remember, this is not just the twelve, but a group of people coming down for Passover. And those who followed were fearful. Now, you can kind of speculate on what that fear might have been. I think it's become clear at this point, is as he gets close to Jerusalem, whenever he is, uh, wherever he is in his ministry... He's always in more trouble when he's back on on their territory. So I think that's the issue there. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. the Romans, remember, the Jews couldn't carry out a death penalty sentence, but they could get the Romans to do that, and that's what they ended up doing. Verse 34, they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now the other accounts say essentially the same thing as what we just read. But look at Luke's account, verse chapter 18, verse 34. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. It says it was hidden from them. I think that's a... An implication that was hidden from them by God, they it wasn't time for them to understand yet. Uh, it's kind of a mystery as to why that would be. They're going to understand much better after the crucifix and resurrection, certainly, they're going to understand better after Pentecost why all that had to happen in the first place. But at this point, they're still, still not quite getting it, and that was in spite of Jesus' explicit words. They still expect Jesus again at this point in time as he comes back down to Jerusalem for Passover in particular To make himself known as the Messiah, restore the Davidic throne and establish the kingdom Next we have a warning against ambitious pride We'll read Matthew's account here, Matthew 20 beginning in verse 20 Now what we're going to run into over the next couple of episodes are some classic examples of having to do some work to harmonize two seemingly different accounts. And the big difference between us and those that are more critical toward the scriptures is they could read these episodes and say, well, there you go, there's a mistake. One gospel writer says that Jesus healed two men. The other just says one. That's a contradiction. One of them has to be wrong. Well, it's not. I mean, you can have two different (coughs) accounts of Jesus and one of them just focusing on one individual of the two and the other one actually mentioning the two. If you said there was only one, then that would be a contradiction, but that's not what we have in this account. But even in this one that we're about to read, this warning against ambitious pride, Matthew's account says it's the mother of the sons of Zebedee that came to Jesus. It does say with her sons, and it goes on to relate her interaction with Jesus. And yet Mark's account talks about, doesn't mention the mother, just says James and John came. Well. Both are true, and you could you could conceivably have both individuals interacting with Jesus on different levels. So that's just something to keep in mind. you, That's one of the things that comes to light when you do a study like this, as you start comparing and looking more closely at the accounts and the, and the places that they do differ, but doesn't mean they can't be harmonized. So let's look here Matthew's account, chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Those would have obviously been the places of honor. We've already seen just a little while back that Jesus told the twelve, Hey, you're going to sit on twelve thrones around me and rule over the twelve tribes of Israel. So it's understandable that that would have prompted this kind of question or this kind of request. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Here, the mother is not the one that answers, but James and John. They said to him, we're able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those who for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Uh, As you can imagine, the the reaction of the other disciples is one of indignation toward these two. They're asking for something that would put them uh, a little bit above the rest, and that's what the text says. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, and then we get the lesson out of this whole episode. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Now, obviously, Jesus himself is the one that demonstrates that. It's the best example of that. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was willing to put the needs of others ahead of his own in order to do what God called him to do. Now, does he give up glory in doing that? Well, temporarily, he gave up glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world, but he also does it knowing that God is going to ultimately exalt him. And we can do the same thing. We uh, we consider the needs of others greater than our own. We humble ourselves both before God and in service to others. But we can do that, knowing that ultimately God will reward and honor in the end. And we don't, we don't have to worry about that. We just do what God commands us to do in serving others in this life. Will? Um, the part where it says that like, if you want to be made first and you have to be a slave or whatever, is that saying that if you want to be made first, then you should become humble? Or is it saying that if you put yourself first, then you will be humbled? Well, say it, the second one again like it, is it saying that you're making yourself greater and so you're going to be humbled or if you want to make yourself greater then you should become humble? I would say well I think it's close to the same thing I think it's just a recognition that you don't try to lord it over people in this life you, you serve others you put the needs of others ahead of your own uh, and he's contrasting that's exactly what Gentile people do I mean you can see that in politics you can see it in The workplace, there are people that climb the ladder and they want power. They want authority over others. And for us, it's just the opposite. We, We don't seek that. Doesn't mean we won't get it in this life. Sometimes in humble service, you end up, like Daniel, for example, taken into exile as a teenager. He ends up, you know, second command to these kings. But the attitude in this life is not to get as high as you can get. It's to humbly serve and to and to know, as you do that, that God will exalt in the end. He exalts the humble and he uh, abases the proud. Just, and he, he finishes with the example of Christ in verse 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life ransom for many. <clears throat> So again, that question was understandable on the one part by both James and John. I don't, you know, we don't know what went on behind the scenes. Was James and John's mother the one that wanted that for them more than they did? Or was it they're trying to get their mother to go ask Jesus and thinking he would uh, grant it to her before he would grant it to them. But they obviously had, had missed the point of humility and the need for humility even to enter the kingdom. Um, And that's something that Jesus was reinforcing here. Next, we have the healing of blind Bartimaeus and his companion. And and again, there's two men involved here. A couple of the gospel writers uh, only focus on one. I'm gonna start, uh, let's see here. I'm gonna read Mark's account here as well. Well, let's read all three. And this is one of those ones that I want you to see the difference. Matthew says, as they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Behold, two blind men sitting by the road. Mark says, as they came to Jericho, I'm sorry, and they came to Jericho. And then he says, as he was going out. So Mark actually includes both their approach to the city and their leaving. And Mark and Matthew actually agree with each other that the healing took place as they were leaving. So I think it's fair for us to conclude that that was the way it was. But look at at Luke's account. Luke 18 beginning verse 35 It came about that as he was approaching Jericho A certain blind man was begging by the road Was sitting by the road begging Now hearing a multitude going by He began to inquire what this might be And he goes on to relate the story And it sounds like that these two are healed As Jesus comes into the city Rather than after he's leaving And especially if you continue on into Luke 19, after all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, talk about the healing of these two blind men. Luke 19 verse 1 says, and he entered and was passing through Jericho. So the question is, how can we square that up? How can we say that on the one hand, he's entering Jericho in Luke's account and he heals these two men. On the other two, he's leaving the city. Well, and it's hard to say with definiteness, but what would be a possibility? One would be that he, uh, he sees these two men on the way in, but doesn't really interact with them and heal them until they're on the way out. Now, I think that's, that's kind of tough to do, tough to make that case in light of what Luke says in nineteen chapter 19 and following. But that's the best I can do at this point. I think Matthew and Mark, the fact that they agreed that it was after he was leaving the city that he healed the two men. And Luke puts it a, at least the initial interaction is only approaching Jericho. He doesn't say anything about them leaving the city. I'm going to agree with Matthew and Mark that when it happened and try to adjust Luke's account a little bit um, not, without doing damage to it. But that's just an example of the kind of thing that you have to do sometimes. Sometimes it's easier than this. Sometimes it's very hard to do. What we don't do is attribute error to one of the gospel writers because we've used this illustration before. We could have three people observe an automobile accident out here and if you talk to them individually, you get one account. But if you put them all together, you're gonna get a fuller account. You're gonna have some things that one person saw and said that the others didn't. And I think that's a good way for us to look at at these accounts. So let's, let's continue with Mark's account here. They came to Jericho as he was going out from Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. So they recognize. What do you think they're recognizing when they call Jesus the son of David? That he's the Messiah. And they know, even from their instruction in the Old Testament, not to mention probably hearing about things that Jesus had done already, that the Messiah had this kind of power. He had the ability to give sight to the blind, for example, and that's what they needed. Uh, Again, the reaction of the crowd is, is different. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, arise, he's calling for you. And casting aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Now, again, Luke agrees with that account and just focuses on the one individual of the two. Matthew mentions two men. That's just something that we put together and say that there were two there. And two of the gospel writers focus more on the more vocal one of the two. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got the same kind of incident, Um, I want to say, and we'll get there, when we're having the account of the resurrection, the angels that are speaking with those that come to the tomb. One of them mentions one angel, one of them mentions two. It's not a contradiction. The the two accounts are complementary. Okay. Now we come to a story that's well known to us, uh, oftentimes because we hear it as children, It's interesting to think about the fact that it takes place very soon before the triumphal entry and before Passion Week. And that's the salvation of Zacchaeus. This is only recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. Luke 19, beginning of verse 1. He entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was the chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. Now, the term there for teaching... Chief tax gatherer is one word in the Greek. It's the only place that it occurs in all the New Testament, so we don't know a lot about it, but obviously it was a position of uh, hierarchy and the guy made good money off of it. I think about it in terms of <clears throat> my first wife, Carol, when she worked at a hair cutting place, the guy that owned the shop cut hair, but he also got a cut, no pun intended, of each one of the people that worked for him. So he he made out really well because he got a certain percentage of everything that they cut and he got his own money. Well, I think there's a similar situation here. This chief tax gatherer was probably over the tax office for Jericho and Jericho was a great place to collect taxes because it was a major city and there was a, a main roadway that came through there. So he'd done very well as a result. Of course, he would have been despised by his fellow Jews, we learn later that this is a Jewish person. It wasn't unusual for the Roman government to hire Jews to collect, and they would collect what they needed to pass along to the Romans, but they would also collect more and line their own pockets with it. And that's why the Jewish people despised them. This one was this was Zacchaeus. He was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And I think that's a, a divine must. Uh, the fact that he was a tax gatherer wasn't going to have an impact on his opportunity to hear the gospel or, or to, to hear from Jesus and and to be saved. He hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, again, the surrounding people, they all began to grumble saying, he is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, everybody's a sinner, right? But this guy, they would call somebody who was a sinner who was a prostitute, for example, somebody who made their living sinning. And that's the the same category they would put this guy in. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor And if I have defrauded anyone of anything I will give back four times as much That's a mark of genuine change uh, Tax gatherers didn't Normally think that way And Zacchaeus was uh, He was repenting, in essence And he was demonstrating that repentance Through tangible acts Jesus said to him "Today salvation has come To this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of God has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now we've seen this before, where the harlots and the tax gatherers were more likely to hear Jesus and receive his message and believe in him as the Messiah than the rulers of Israel, even though they were the ones who should have known better than anybody. They're the ones that were constantly opposing him, whereas the tax gatherers and the harlots were the ones that were receiving him and believing in him. We've also talked about the fact before that uh, the religious leaders and the people in general didn't like Jesus associating with sinners. And this was tangible fruit that he, he did do that. And and he brought change into those people's lives through their salvation. All right. We've started to see in several places in our study uh, this idea that that Christ wasn't going to do all that the Old Testament said he was going to do in his first coming. What, what would be the, one of the earliest places that we saw that? That there was going to be a delay in fulfilling some of these prophecies? The one they wanted to make a king? Okay, so that would be an obvious place. That's later than what I'm thinking about. There's an earlier instance. All the way back to Matthew 12 and 13, where, you know, they're saying that Jesus cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And he says that they've sinned against the Holy Spirit. It's an unpardonable sin. And in Matthew 13, he starts teaching parables that include the idea of a delay. And we're going to see that even more when we get into Passion Week and we look at the Olivet Discourse. But especially over the last six months... He's been trying to teach the disciples, hey, I'm going to end up dying and and coming back to life, but there's going to be a delay in fulfilling all those prophecies that speak about the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. And a lot of the time, there's an emphasis on the need to be faithful during that period of delay, and that's going to be the case here. So this is also only in Luke's gospel, chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. While they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That's why I've been making that point all this morning. They're still in that mindset. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive the kingdom for himself and then return. There's actually a historical incident that might be the background for this story, this parable that he's telling them now. Um, Archelaus was the son of Herod the Great, and Herod would be the one to bequeath a certain portion of the, his kingdom to his sons, but then they had to go to Rome to get that confirmed. So in that sense, they would go to a distant country, Rome would have to buy off on it, and then they would come back and rule. So the nobleman goes to this... this distant country to receive the kingdom and then return and he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas, and said to them do business with this until I come back now a minor wasn't a huge amount of money it was a typical wage for a hundred days labor now if this uh, parable sounds similar to one that you've heard before it's the parable of the talents in the Olivet Discourse and the talent was much more money, A talent was worth $1,000 in silver content of the day, but as you can imagine, that was a tremendous amount of buying power, a lot more than well, what we would think of $1,000 today. But this is a different parable, different unit of currency that he's talking about, and in a different setting. This is taking place before the Olivet Discourse. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Who do you think that's referring to? Well, who's the nobleman in the parable? Who does it represent? It represents Christ and the fact that he's going to go all the way to heaven, not just to a distant country on earth, but he's going to go to heaven in a sense to receive his kingdom and then come back one day. So who would be the citizens that hated him? The Pharisees, the the Jews, the, the religious leaders. Um, and we're going to see that uh, there's two different lessons in this parable. And one of them is a very stern warning against those that hated him. Citizens handed him and sent him to the delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. It came about that when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, that he ordered, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. First appeared saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, being authority over 10 cities. And the second came in saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. So one of the lessons that we pick up is that God does give differing gifts and differing levels of gifts and abilities and our responsibility is to be a good steward of what he's entrusted right we're not all going to be given the same thing but we're given different levels of ability different spiritual gifts even different natural if i can say it that way talents and abilities our responsibility is not to look at, with the envy on somebody else who might have something different or more but to be faithful with what we have another came saying master behold your mind which i Behold your miner, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. In other words, the man, uh, at least in the eyes of this particular slave, was not a good man. He, uh, he profited from somebody else's resources. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Do you not know or do you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Now, we don't know if that's true or not. At least was this man's impression of him. Then why did you not put the money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Now, do you think they had banks the way that we do today? No. No. You see, the point is, okay, you could have at least made some money even without doing a whole lot. There were money changers, and there were men that you could put your money with and gain some money over time. That's basically what a bank does with interest, and that's the point here. He said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he doesn't have shall be taken away. And again, that sounds a lot like what we hear in the parable of the talents. And even in the the parables in Matthew 13, the idea of the one who has and receives Christ and believes in him, more shall be given to him. The one who rejects Christ and doesn't understand the parables they'll serve to harden his heart and even take away divine truth that had been given to them from the old testament it goes a little bit against the way that we think and even in the way that the bystanders in the parable thought you know why would you give it to the guy who already had a bunch but that's god's sovereign right to do and to even give more to the one who served more faithfully is the better steward But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. So again, think about where we are in the context of Jesus' ministry in a timeline way. He's 15 miles from Jerusalem at this point, and he's delivering this parable, especially in light of the fact that not everything that's predicted about him in the Old Testament is going to come to pass. They did expect that as they were approaching Jerusalem. And the lesson of the parable is twofold. One, the main point would be for those that are faithful disciples of Jesus to be faithful during the period of delay. And again, we're going to see a number of parables in all of that discourse that address that, especially in Matthew 25. It's very relevant for us today. As I said before, we, we have very little control over the portion that's given to us. We don't Have any control over the parents that we're born to, the family that we're born to, the part of the country we're born in, the part of the world. Uh, Even the abilities and opportunities, that's all uh, by God's choice. But we all have the ability to be good stewards of what God gives, and that's what our responsibility is. And we're to be about faithfully employing the things that God gives us to further the kingdom, to further the spread of the gospel. The second lesson, and it was made to the Jews of Jesus' day because those were the ones who, in the gospel accounts, very obviously opposed Christ, but it would be the same for those today who aren't faithful. And, and God gives all those things to unbelievers as well, right? But those, those folks aren't being good stewards in the sense of honoring God in the way that they use what God has given them either. So that would be the application by extension, but the Jews who refuse to acknowledge him as king are giving a stern warning in this case, they'll be slayed in his presence, they'll be judged, they'll ultimately face an eternal death in the lake of fire. So that finishes up uh, Jesus teaching as he's making his way down from Galilee with the pilgrims into Bethany first and then Jerusalem. Like I said, for the next couple of weeks, we won't be doing Life of Christ in the second hour, and then we'll resume our study in January, and we'll start picking up study of Passion Week. Lots goes on during that week. It starts with a triumphal entry, culminates with the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, there's some significant teaching discourses with toward the Pharisees and towards his opponents during that week. There's also teaching with the 12 at the Olivet Discourse. Again, trying to prepare them for an extended period where he's away from them and what their responsibilities are in that case. Any other questions or comments before we finish this morning? I hope, you know, one of the things I hope that the study is doing, helping you with overall is just... Again, giving you a framework for the three years, giving you a better idea of when certain incidents that you're very familiar with, like the story of Zacchaeus, occur in Jesus' ministry, and just understanding how things changed and how Jesus responded to different points in his ministry. Uh, the parables, mysteries of the kingdom would be a major one, uh, depending on what he was facing. Okay, Hope we don't have any other comments, Merry Christmas to you all. It's good to see all of you here this morning. I hope you have a blessed time with family over the holidays, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. Let's have a word of prayer and be dismissed. Father, we do thank you for uh, the record of what we have of the life of Christ, the way that he took advantage of opportunities even while he was traveling down to passover to teach to make clear uh, the necessities of the kingdom the, the entrance and what was required to enter the kingdom uh, the need for faithfulness as a steward of what you've entrusted where we pray that you'd help us to do that as well we pray even that we'd be faithful in, in the time off If we have some around the holidays to reflect on what you've done for us, what you've accomplished in Christ, and as the new year approaches, just to to renew our commitment to you to be faithful in what you've entrusted to us. Um, We recognize that we don't have control over the, the portion and the opportunities in many ways, but we can always be faithful as stewards. We want the... The expectation of Christ's return to be our motivation and we want to hear you say well done that good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master we do look forward to that day when when Christ will come back we know that it's preceded on the one hand by a time of great tribulation on the earth and we know that you have spared us from that because of the promise of taking us out of the world before that time of tribulation comes But we also know that we will continue to suffer in this life if we are faithful to follow Christ. We pray that you'd help us to to do that with endurance, uh, to not take our eyes off of Christ's own suffering on our behalf and to recognize that whatever we go through in the way of suffering in this life is unworthy to be compared to the glory that will follow. Lord, thank you again for, for our time this morning. Help us to be faithful this week as we live for for you and for Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.